Hi, everybody, and welcome to the January 2019 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. My guest today is Declan Gorley. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, reoccurring guest. Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, you were the first guest on the first episode. Do you remember how long ago that was? Uh, Got to be over a year ago at this point. It was in December of 2016. Wow. Two years of doing this thing. I haven't been shut down yet. <laughs> it was, you know, n- not like it's going to happen, right? But uh, we're here today to talk about uh, Medicare uh, and MSAs and the issues that come up in New York Workers' Comp. Uh, there is a 101 level podcast on Tuesday, February or January 22nd, uh, the day after Martin Luther King Day, and. Our podcast today is really the 201 level accompaniment to that webinar. But re, uh, view those in conjunction and you'll be able to figure out where we're going. Okay, so uh, a little bit of current events first. Uh, interestingly, there was a bill proposed in Wyoming very recently, and it had to do with uh, air ambulances uh, bringing workers' compensation uh, claimants to hospitals uh, and facilities that require emergency care. And apparently, the fee schedule in Wyoming actually cost these air ambulance companies money because their cost for producing or or transporting uh, injured workers to hospitals was higher than the fee schedule were, uh, were allowing them to charge. And they actually sued the state of Wyoming. So in response, the state of Wyoming proposed this new bill where these air ambulance companies had a choice. They could either charge double the fee schedule or... The Medicare fee schedule. Right. Or come up with a different price what they usually charge and the balance in excess of the fee schedule would be payable by the injured worker. Yeah, which sounds completely crazy, but... I mean, the... uh, (laughs) Projections looking were looking like saving employers in the state of Wyoming $4 million over the course of a year. And although that sounds nice and great, <laughs> it doesn't seem viable at all, right? So it, it, are you agree with me on that a little bit? Yeah, or? it just sounds... When you brought this to my attention a little while ago, I thought this sounded completely crazy, to be honest with you. I mean, shifting it to the injured worker, I just... There's a lot of possible ways this could play out, but... I also thought it was interesting. This is the number one. This is the first time I've ever thought about Wyoming in any context. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, f- very far away. Uh, but we're definitely going to be keeping our eye on it, right? Because uh, the proponents of the bill are talking about how now the air companies uh, will be in, air ambulance companies will be incentivized to go after the double fee schedule uh, cost because uh, that's payable by uh, you know the state essentially, uh, vis-a-vis insurance companies directed by the state. And that money will be set in stone, and you can get recovery of that uh, cost faster. But other people are looking at the bill and saying, well, if you have the option to go after the injured worker for something in excess of the fee schedule, doesn't that result in the air air ambulance companies jacking up the price and then going after the injured worker? And to make it even full circle, right, if I'm an injured worker who now gets hit with an air ambulance bill for emergency care that took me from my home to a hospital, 
what am I going to do? I'm not going to pay that bill. I'm just going to file it with the with the state and say you go pay this, right? Like I, it doesn't make. There's a lot of interesting takeaways from this. First of all, I would think how often do people get airlifted in the context of work to a hospital? I don't I don't picture it happening that often. Maybe, but I yeah. I see this spiraling out of control into all of a sudden ambulances saying that this costs more for them to than the fee schedule. Right. I mean, actually in New York City where the traffic is some of the absolute worst in the country, we don't see air ambulances. We right. still see So then the next thing is is the default gonna be let's send a helicopter out so that we can get a reimbursement for some crazy amount of money. Right. That's yeah. It seems a little far fetched, but it's it's a very it's it's a it's it's a response, I guess, to to the problem that's that's occurring in Wyoming. We're going to keep our eyes on it and see if it has any more practical application to workers' compensation in general. But uh, for now, it's uh, it's in proposed status, and we'll see where that goes. And we'll also see, I guess, how strong the claimants bar in Wyoming is, because could you imagine in New York? I mean, they literally want to burn down the Capitol talking about schedule loss of use. <laughs> right. We're talking about schedule loss of use resulting in picketing and uh, you know, really just the, the worst forms of violent protest that are, have been arranged by... Uh, bar associations, and now we're going to get a situation where employers are going to save $4 million and pass those costs on to the <laughs> injured worker? Okay, right? Well, we'll see if that happens. Uh, but the main topic of today uh, is how we go about uh, the high MSAs coming back, especially in cases where we need CMS approval and have to disclose that number as part of a full and final settlement, right? So uh, what is an example of a case where we would need an MSA to be approved by CMS? Uh, perfect example is whenever we have a settlement above $25,000 and the person is already on Medicare. Right. So uh, current beneficiary and indemnity plus medical in the settlement is over $25,000, right? The other one is a little bit trickier, but not too bad, right? If it's $250,000 and above, and there's a reasonable expectation that the claimant will be uh, eligible for Medicare within 30 months of the approval of the settlement. That also needs to be approved by CMS. So basically, people that are 62 and a half years of age or older, because they will become Medicare eligible at, 30, uh, at the age of 65, and then people that are applying for Social Security disability. Right, because that you would know that they would become eligible within 30 months, even if you had settled that case today, right, for the 62 and a half year old individual. So uh, in that vein, we oftentimes have to recommend procuring the MSA and assessing it. And a lot of times we get the MSA back and it's just too high it, and it, or it doesn't even make sense, right? You know, current costs are being outlaid and to project future costs that are kind of rising exponentially uh, for the rest of the person's life, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it also kind of defeats the notion that someone gets better with treatment, right? They shouldn't incur an exponentially increasing cost for future medical care in any situation. Right. We see they're not realistic. We see someone's 35 years old currently taking some type of pain medication or opioid, and they're being projected to live another 60 years taking the exact same medication at the same dosage for 60 years. And that's why we're getting these crazy numbers. Right. And I you know, kind of looking at it from the cost projection standpoint, you know, how, how, how are the vendors supposed to do this in the first place? Right? It's almost like they have to because it's the, only, it's the only data that they have. Unless there is some kind of mandate from a federal regulatory board like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid where you can say, you know, in the typical case, uh, these types of drugs are generally weaned to nothing 
or at least to a manageable level for the rest of a person's life. But we don't have that, right? So they extrapolate, like you said, the 35-year-old person who takes uh, 100 milligrams of X is projected to take that level of dosage and that brand of medication for the rest of his or her life expectancy. So what do we do when we get those types of MSAs? Uh, with those types of MSAs, we can now use the pain management, acute, uh, acute pain management guidelines to reduce opioids in the state of New York. So our recommendation when someone's a long-time opioid user is to seek getting a weaning process in place to get them, before we even get the MSA, submit it to CMS, would be to reduce the cost of the MSA. Right. And that would be either hopefully getting them off the opioid completely so that we don't have to cost factor that in. And that's actually a good point that you bring up before we get the MSA, right? If we know that the prescription bills are coming in at, you know, X amount of dollars, then we will know that that cost is going to be projected for the life expectancy. So even before we get the actual projection from the uh, MSA vendor, there should be a good idea of how much this prescription is going to cost to settle the claim. Right. It might delay settlement a little bit, but in the context of things, it might delay settlement by six months to a year. And if you're saving possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is what these MSAs are coming back at just for one medication, uh, it might be worth considering. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talked about this from in the very first episode of this podcast in 2016, where we, we said, this is going to be a situation where the board's going to look at the national epi you know, epidemic of opioids and, and really implement more reasonable weaning programs to get people off of these awful pain medications that they don't actually need and may, may not even be using all the time. So one of those options, like you said, getting a weaning program in place, right? I don't uh, know about your particular cases, but I've seen that the board has been very quick to schedule weaning hearings and litigation in an, in an efficient manner so that the issue is not just dragged on, right? If we get evidence of a uh, weaning program being implemented or proposed to be implemented, then I've seen the, the process kind of push through rather quickly, almost kind of like the same time frame that you would expect an MSA to be approved by CMS. Coincidentally. Right. I think it's because it's not, not as adversarial as you might think it might be. I think typically we're getting a weaning schedule by an IME or a peer review, and we're submitting to the board, and the treating doctor has an opportunity to respond, and oftentimes they're not responding, meaning the default is our weaning program that's going to be implemented by the board. Or the other thing that I've seen most commonly is just no response at all. Right. Or the, sorry, no response at all, or the doctors agreeing with the weaning schedule. Right. Because, and that's kind of a twofold uh, approach here, because... Most times when people are getting the ongoing prescriptions, it's not from the doctor directly, right? Uh, it could be a physician's assistant that's just authorizing a, uh, you know, a script every so often at the doctor's direction. So you might not even have a doctor visit that results in a new prescription. And the doctor's not assessing whether this is truly necessary. Now you have a direction from the board saying, hey, like, are you really going to continue oxycodone at this level for the next three months? A lot of doctors will probably look at that and say, okay, you know, we, we can assess the risks of doing so and say that he can be weaned a little bit. Right. So I've seen that as well, like you said, where <clears throat> there's an agreement on some level of weaning, and now you're, you're doing uh, the twofold, you're doing things that result in a twofold uh, result. Uh, you're decreasing the current costs, right? We're not paying 
the, uh, the prescription bills at such a high amount anymore because the dosage is going uh, down. And for the MSA, like you said, now that we have a more manageable uh, cost projection foundation, right, the vendor can now project a different cost for the remainder of the life expectancy. Right, hopefully it'll be nothing. Right. Now, there also is, uh, you know, the non-litigation way to get this done. Can you talk about some of the options we have to reduce those high MSAs if, in working with claimants' attorneys? So uh, I've had success where we got a, a claimant taking a brand name drug and saying that, because of course, claimants' attorneys want to settle these cases often, and they know that if they can get the medication changed, we go to them and say, hey, this is the average cost for this pill that the person's taking. Uh, if we get them on a generic brand, generic version of this medication, it could literally cut the cost in more than half. I've seen uh, an MSA go down by $300,000 because of a generic brand being used instead of a name brand drug. Right. And right. our adversary, we, we basically get our adversary's consent to treat, talk to the treating doctor and then get the treating doctor on board. Now, I've had some doctors that say, we've already tried that and the person can't use that for whatever reason, either they're allergic or it's not effective. But the majority of the time that we've the doctor's attention, uh, he's gone forward with or she's gone forward with changing the medication and then it allows us to submit our MSA or the medications and get a reduced MSA. Yeah, and honestly, you know, going through all that whole process, you know, what's the worst that can happen, right? Like if you don't get access to the doctor or the doctor doesn't agree, yeah, you know, I mean, you're just in the position you were in the, from the first place, right? Like it's it doesn't hurt to actually try that out of court, uh, you know, uh, I guess, work with the other side to see if uh, an agreement can be reached, especially if the other side, and when I say the other side, I mean the claimant's attorneys, know that at such an exorbitant MSA cost, it's, it's just not going to happen. A right. settlement is not going to happen. We're not selling a case. You're not getting your attorney fee, and life's going to go on the way it is because right. this is not happening. So if you have productive. a motivated adversary, right, then they should be willing to help you, right? Like, I mean, we all we know the plenty of, of times where the adversary will not want to help us, right? But in this case, if, you, if a settlement is really on the table, both sides are interested, and it's just the amount of the MSA that's really pushing uh, against uh, an approval, then... They should be more willing to work with us, and we've seen that. I've never had pushback on this issue. I mean, right. they might come back and say it's not possible. We've already discussed this, but uh, anytime I've ever approached an adversary with this position said, hey, can you get your doctor to do this? It's pretty much instant. Like within a couple of days, they're sending a letter to the treating physician asking or giving us authority to speak out, speak to them directly. Right, right. So it's definitely another way we can go about it too, right? The litigation route and then kind of non-litigation where we kind of discuss exactly what's going on. Um, and essentially, uh, what we have is an idea for people to use whether the, it works for their case or not, right? Those MSAs are going to continue to come back. Uh, I did want to talk about a recent board panel decision that came out last month, and it only just be for, for an interesting argument that, that a carrier had made that was rejected by the board panel. But essentially, they, they took testimony of a, a treating doctor. Did they actually consider the decision, or they just kick it out for a defective RB89? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah, it, this one actually was ex accepted on the merits, although they still denied the application. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're seeing more of that. I'm sure you are, too, out there. Uh, RB89s from both sides are getting denied because you know a box wasn't filled out properly, uh, and it, 
it's kind of interesting because it's creating this almost class action <laughs> feel to going to the third apartment, right? The third department is getting uh, just kind of broadsided with all these appeals from uh, plain, like uh, claimant and defense, and they're going to have to issue rulings as to what boxes are allowed to be checked, what not, it, what and what what is not allowed. Like that is that is certainly something they didn't expect to be doing. But of course, you know, you have the board now saying we've been great at uh, issuing decisions on all of our appeals. And it's really just denying it based on the fact that an application wasn't filled filled out to their liking. But I digress. That's just a soapbox issue. Uh, this board panel decision was heard on the merits, and the 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 carrier was cross-examining a treating doctor who admitted to giving prior treatment to the claimant, but uh, those the bills for that treatment were submitted through Medicare. And so after the testimony was taken, the carrier argued that they were prejudiced by uh, having to produce an IME within a short timeline without access to those records. Now the board panel said, okay, uh, we're not we're not going to say that you were prejudiced because you didn't get one anyway, right? Like they they just chose not to schedule an exam and leaned on this argument. But I'm, I want to discuss exactly what we could do when we find out that there is an, uh, a possibility that Medicare is being billed for treatment and we don't even see records, or maybe we do see the records, right? Because sometimes we see in each case a whole list of records, right? And in a denied case, you would expect to see disputes for those bills, right? Uh, I've seen some cases where I don't see the disputes, and so I'm wondering whether the bills are actually even being forwarded to uh, our clients. And one thing I thought of is our subpoena power, where in a sense, if we don't see that kind of link between record and either bill payment or bill dispute, we should be subpoenaing those doctors immediately, right? To give that IME the, the, be, the best possible chance to review records that we may not have, right? And, and in this board panel decision, that IME did, did not have it. I mean, it wasn't scheduled, but he wouldn't have had it if they had scheduled it. There would have been a prejudice if there was an IME, but there was no IME. Right, right. So I would say sch schedule the IME, have the doctor comment on whether additional records would be helpful because of course they always are. And now you have your prejudice argument because there are records out in the ether that you don't have. But that's another thing that you know we can do as counsel to our clients and essentially review these medical records with a fine tooth comb. If there's an indication in those records that shows Medicare is being billed or Medicare has been paying for this type of prior treatment, we should be subpoenaing the, that, that doctor for prior records like that day. Right. We want to get those records as soon as possible. We also could find out with the conditional payment lien, the letter that the, your carrier or client will get. Another great point, yeah. right? Because like the conditional payment is going to give you a number that's going to allow you to reasonably determine how long has this treatment been going on, right? Is it like a couple hundred bucks or thousands of dollars, right? So uh, using those numbers to kind of make good deductive uh, you know, reasoning is really going to help us in the long run, right? Okay, so we went over some current events in Wyoming. Uh, you mentioned that is the that's the first time you've ever thought of Wyoming, so uh, I hope no one takes offense to that comment. Uh, but 
uh, we will be monitoring Wyoming for the results of that bill proposal uh, and see how it impacts some of the things that we talked about after that, right? How we go about um, high MSAs coming back on the litigation side and out of court and seeing whether current events can really influence that process. Uh, does that sound right? Does that sound like a good Sounds a good plan of summary? action. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, I, Declan, I want to thank you for coming on again. Uh, I believe the last time Chris Major came on the show, you were worried that he was going to Pass outpace me. you. But I think we should look at numbers. That's all that matters. <laughs> That's right. All right. Yes, for Declan Gorley, uh, my name is Christian Cison, reminding everybody here to defend from day one.